Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. And my guest, Mark Atterbury, was a pastor for 46 years, and he saw a lot in his uh, job and his ministry. He's actually met some troublemakers in the church, and we're going to talk about that today. He's actually written a book called Troublemakers in the Church, dealing with the difficult, the dangerous, and the deadly. And he says that, in his view, lying is the greatest threat to the body of Christ. Lies hurt people deeply. They spark anger and destroy relationships. Mark, so glad to have you on the show. Hey, thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, when you say the word troublemaker, I think the first thing that comes to mind is maybe it'd be helpful if we defined define a troublemaker. Yes, I think that's important. You know, um, you're not a troublemaker just because you have weaknesses or imperfections that show up. Um, because if that were the case, we'd all be troublemakers. Mm-hmm. In my mind, a troublemaker is a person who has weaknesses and imperfections, but they become a problem in the ministry. And it could be all kinds of things. It could be just creating conflict and pitting people against each other, or it could be discouraging the preacher and the leaders, making their jobs harder. It could even be uh, something like damaging the reputation of the church and the community, uh, depending on what, what you're doing. But yeah, Imperfect people are in church. They're always going to be there, and that's really not the problem. The problem is when those imperfect people start damaging what the church is all about and trying to to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mark, in your book, uh, Troublemakers in the Church, you describe 25 different types of troublemakers, which I know everyone's going, oh, tell us all of them right now. Um, But you do think liars are the worst. I would love for you to say more about that. Well, yeah, we— you know, I wanted the book to be a little bit fun. Um, you know, it's a heavy topic. And so I decided to rank uh, 25 types of people that I've run into over the years in ministry, kind of from the worst to the best, kind of like a college football or a college basketball ranking. And um, and on the on the rankings, you know, you get number 25 all the way down to number one. And football and basketball, number one is best. But in this ranking, number one is worst. It's the the worst person in the church. And I did give that um, dubious honor to the liars out there. I I really believe that the lie is Satan's biggest club that he uses to beat up the cause of Christ. Uh, If you go all the way back to the beginning— you know, in the beginning of time when Satan wanted to introduce sin into God's perfect creation, the tool he used was the lie. He told Eve that if she would just eat that fruit, you know, she would be like God. She would know what God knows. And I just believe it's his weapon of first choice. I believe it's done more to cause harm in this world than any other sin. And I certainly believe it's done more to cause harm in the body of Christ. Because as a pastor for 46 years, I learned that you can work through almost 
any problem if people are just honest and truthful and, you know, confessing the truth and being honest about things. But so often, you know, we shade the truth, we hide the truth, we twist the truth. And, and so problems either don't get solved or they, or solved or they get worse. And so, yeah, I gave that um, ranking number one, mm-hmm. the liars. Mm-hmm. You have, uh, I'm looking through all of these and, and they're all very intriguing. Uh, maybe we would talk about the one day wonder. The one day wonder is the guy who is a great Christian on Sunday. But when you hear his language at work on Monday, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you're not as impressed. Mm-hmm. And boy, let me tell you, I've met a lot of those people over the years. Well, quick story. I was walking into a hardware store one day, and I knew the proprietor. I needed to pick up uh, something for a project I was doing at home. And as soon as I walked in the door, he said, hey, Mark, does so-and-so go to your church? And he said a name of a guy that went to our church. And not only did he go to our church, he was pretty active and pretty involved, pretty well known in our church. And I had kind of a sinking feeling when he asked me that question. And I said, yeah, he does. And the proprietor of that store said, well, you should have been here 15 minutes ago. You could have listened to him cuss me out. Mm. And my heart sank and I apologized to the guy and said, hey, that we don't approve of that at our church, and I'm sorry it happened. But that is the one-day wonder. He's a great Christian on Sunday or maybe maybe when he's around the church building, but other times not so much. Mm-hmm. Mark, Mark Atterbury is my guest. He's written a book called Troublemakers in the Church, Dealing with the Difficult, the Dangerous, and the Deadly. Mark, would you talk about the vampire? The vampire is the very needy, high-maintenance person who drains you. <laughs> so, I, so I gave him the, the name the vampire. And, and every pastor, every church leader, and I think especially pastors, run into this kind of person. It's the person who's calling you all the time. He might call you more than once a day. He might call you four or five times a week. He's always got a crisis in his life, and he just can't survive unless you drop what you're doing and and give him your time. And he's the kind of person on Sunday at church that every time you turn around, you bump into him. He just kind of shadows you. He just needs you so much. And, And this can be a very, you know, nice person. It doesn't mean he's evil. Mm-hmm. It just means that he's a guy who will who will drain you. He, he he can never get enough of you. Now, do you prefer uh, people with mediocre talent serving in church over big talent people with egos? I do, and and that comes from the uh, chapter I did. Uh, I think it's number fifteen on the list. The glory hound. Mm-hmm. The glory hound is the person. You know, usually I have to say this. It's usually a musical person, a singer, or a, a, a an instrumentalist, somebody who kind of sees the church stage as their own America's Got Talent venue. Mm-hmm. You know, they love <laughs> to get up and perform, and mm-hmm. and they're hurt deeply hurt if they don't get invited to sing the solo at the Christmas Eve service or whatever. And I've just noticed over the years that things go a lot more peacefully if you have humble people with modest talent as opposed to really high talent people. Because, and I hate to generalize, but a lot of those really 
big talent people often bring big egos with them, and it can be a problem. Mm-hmm. In the book, uh, Troublemakers in the Church by Mark Atterbury, we're talking about that today, about um, the dealing with the difficult, the dangerous, and the deadly. Number seven is the Pharisee. That seems kind of um, um, easy to understand, but I'd love for you to say more. The Pharisee, you know, the Pharisee is kind of the preacher's best friend in the Bible, because every time you need an illustration for how people ought not to behave, you can always open up the Gospels and find a story about a Pharisee, and and you can use it. But in real life, the Pharisee is not the preacher's best friend. A Pharisee, you know, has many issues. But what I was thinking of when I tabbed him for number seven is the person who's extremely judgmental. And, you know, you get you get these people in church who just they they watch everything that's going on. And every time somebody says something or does something that doesn't fit with what they think ought to be, boy, they're calling them out and they're they're casting judgment. And so, yeah, this type of person can really poison the environment and the atmosphere in a church. And the one thing you don't want, and any pastor knows this, any church leader knows this, the one thing you don't want, you don't want your church to get a reputation for being judgmental. You want the church to have a reputation for grace and love and forgiveness. Um, So the Pharisee kind of works against that. Mm -hmm. Mark, why do we often find ourselves making excuses for the troublemakers in our churches? Because it's easier to make excuses for them than it is to deal with them. And I've seen that over and over again, many years uh, of seeing leaders you, you go to a leader, uh, maybe an elder in the church, and you say, hey, we got this problem. This person is, is uh, misbehaving in some way. And the leader will often say, well, you know, that's just how he is. He's been around here a long time, and, and we all know how he is, and we just don't pay any attention to him. Well, and that's why he's terrorized the church for 20 years, because mm-hmm. nobody has ever dealt with him. And um, and so, yeah, it's just easier to make excuses for them than it is to do the hard job of church leadership. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a break. When I come back more with Mark Atterbury, he's written a book called Troublemakers in the Church, dealing with the difficult, the dangerous and the deadly. When we come back, I've got a very hot button question for Mark. You're not going to want to miss this one. love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. for joining me today. I love being with you. I'm speaking to Mark Atterbury. He's written a book called Troublemakers in the Church, dealing with the difficult, the dangerous, and the deadly. Mark, I'm guessing most people don't know they're 
difficult because they're maybe coming from a wounded place. Yes. In fact, uh, I really believe that's a big part of it. You know, people don't realize how troublesome they are sometimes, but they may be just immature. They may have an eccentric personality. They may be broken in some way that goes way back in their history. Uh, And then, of course, there are always people that are just kind of clueless in general. But um, a good tip-off would be, if you're listening to this and you're wondering, well, am I a a problem? Am I a a difficult person at church? Uh, A a tip-off might be just, I think people who are difficult at church are probably difficult everywhere. They're probably difficult at work. They may be difficult at home with their families. And so I think it's good to take a look at your relationships. How do you get along with people? And uh, if you have difficult relationships at work and at home, yeah, you probably have them at church, too. So here's my hot button question. Uh, I I said that before I went to the break. I wanted to ask you this. So when you um, uh, when you're against you are against taking a political position in the church. So doesn't that cause uh, the preacher to sidestep some hot-button topics like gay marriage and abortion? Yes, I think that's a hot-button issue, and a lot of pastors are debating that right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I have good friends that come down on all sides of the issue. But that that comment in the book actually comes from uh, chapter 12 or number 12 on the list. The political and, operative. Yeah, the political operative. You get these people in church who— really are more interested in their personal favorite presidential candidate than mm-hmm. they are in Jesus. Yeah. And they're always promoting and and I've I've had people walk into church wearing t-shirts and hats with mm. political buzzwords and things on them and I don't like that and I don't I don't like as a pastor to be political and the reason is because I don't believe politicians and political parties are the answer to what ails this world. Amen. Uh, I believe they're part of the problem, but I don't believe they're the answer. And I also look at Jesus, and I see that he wasn't political. People wanted him to be, and they were frustrated because he wasn't political, but but he just wasn't. And he didn't do the things that politicians do. You know, politicians take polls to decide what their talking points should be. And exactly. Jesus never did that. Mm-hmm. And he didn't he didn't hold fundraisers and cater to the elite. And he never he never compromised. He never promised to do one thing and then ended up doing something different, which is what politicians often do. And then I think if you if you get political as a preacher, you just alienate half of your congregation. And I don't see how that helps you at all. So I am for just preaching the Bible. You know, if if you just preach the gospel, if you preach the whole counsel of God, you are going to address those uh, social and political issues of the day, like abortion and homosexuality and gay marriage and transgender issues. All of that stuff is in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And you will talk about it if you just preach the Word of God. Um, and I think that's what preachers ought to be doing. I just, I just hate to see churches go political because I think that gives you a lot of extra baggage that you have to explain to people who disagree. And I just wish we could skip all that and talk about Jesus and, and God's word. You're my kind of guy, Mark. Thank you for that. Yeah. Mark Atterbury is my guest. He's written 16 books of both 
fiction and nonfiction, won multiple awards. He uh, can be reached at a little stronger everyday.com. A little stronger everyday.com. As a pastor for 46 years, you've probably seen seen it all, and you've put a bunch of them here in his book, Troublemakers in the Church. Number 13, uh, Mark, is the sniper. Who's that? This is the person who takes pot shots at you from afar. <laughs> he, he, may have, he may have a problem with you, which is fine, mm-hmm. but he won't walk up to your face and talk to you. He'll he'll talk to he'll talk about you and his problem with you when you're not around, and I would say I don't know this is probably a conservative estimate I'd say a thousand times in the years of my ministry, I had somebody walk up to me and tell me what somebody said about me, and that person didn't have the courage um, or the kindness to walk up and just talk to me about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, there are snipers in every church. Okay. What do you mean by spiritual nose blindness? Uh, That's a good one. Spiritual nose blindness is like kind of when um, house nose blindness. Like if you've ever walked into somebody's house and it really has a strange odor and Mm -hmm. you think to yourself, wow, how do these people live with this? The same thing can happen in church, and it happens when you allow these difficult people, these troublemakers, to do what they do without holding them accountable. That becomes part of the culture of your church, and you're used to it. You know how they are. You kind of just look the other way or ignore them or whatever, but when you have a guest, a first-time visitor who walks into your church, and they love your building, and they they think, "Wow, this is this seems like a really nice church." But then they start running into these people that have never been dealt with, and people are rude and they're unkind in some way, and they don't stay; they leave, and they wonder how you can stand it uh, being in a church like that. But you're nose blind. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've lived with it for so long without dealing with it that that it's what you're used to. Who, uh, Mark, is the nostalgist? Oh, the nostalgist is one of my favorites. Uh, the nostalgist is the person who is still in love with the good old days. Uh, it doesn't matter what you do as a pastor, what kind of plans you make, what kind of goals you set, what kind of new programs you start. There's always going to be that person standing there shaking their head, talking about how it was so much better back in the old days. Like if the church is growing, the nostalgist will say, oh, I remember how nice it was when the church was small and everybody knew everybody. (laughs) Or if the church is shrinking— the nostalgist will say, boy, I don't know what's wrong around here. I can remember when we used to have to put out extra chairs to accommodate everybody. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if things are going well or if things are going poorly. The nostalgist can always remember a time in the past when things were better. And this is extremely discouraging to a pastor because you're trying to lead people forward and make things better and you just have this this person who clings to the past and wishes we could go backward instead of forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark, I had a, um, a question from a listener who said, we have a situation in our church where the pastor's wife was the Pharisee. What is the best way to handle that? What happens when the troublemaker's on staff? Well, I can, I can give you a clear answer to that. Oh, it's, not, it's not hard. 
the leaders of that church, the elders of that church, the shepherds of that church have to deal with that. Uh, the pastor's not going to deal with it. And, uh, you know, the, the leaders of the church have to, you know, the, the preacher, people have always come up to me and say, your church, boy, I love your church. And I'm always quick to say, it's not my church. It's Christ's church. I am an employee here. The elders shepherd the church under the authority of Christ, and they shepherd me. And so when you, when you have a problem on the staff, the shepherds, the elders, First Timothy uh, chapter 3 is where you read about the elders. Those are the people that have to deal with that problem. And if they don't, well, then it's not going to go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark, if we see ourselves in one of these roles, how do we change? Are there steps? Well, I, I believe, yes. You, it just takes brutal honesty. One of the purposes of this book was to be uh, a handbook for, for church leaders. But the other purpose, just as important, is to be a mirror. And I would just uh, say that if you see yourself in any of these um, personalities that I've listed, you need to go to your knees. And you need to have a long talk with God, and you need to get up from your knees and be different. You get to choose the kind of person you are, and you get to choose the kind of church member you are. And if you've made uh, some bad choices in the past, you need to start making good choices moving forward. So good. Now, the number one, uh, we've talked about that if you just jumped in your car. Uh, Mark Atterbury is my guest. He's written a book called Troublemakers in the Church. And, and he says, in his view, lying is the greatest threat to the body of Christ. Lies hurt people deeply. They spark anger and destroy relationships. So if lying is number one, huh, I wonder what number two was. And it's the mutineer. I, would you talk about that? The mutineer is the person who um, rallies support against the leadership. Uh, This person is unhappy. Something has happened that he doesn't like, he doesn't approve of, whatever. And so he's going to rally people to his cause. And he's the guy that goes around, or it could be a woman. It could be either. Any of these could be either male or female. But this person goes around and tries to drum up support for his cause and to do damage to the leaders. And and I, the reason I think that is such a terrible thing, and I listed it as number two, is because you can have one person unhappy, but if that person is a mutineer and wants to lead a mutiny, uh, you give him two weeks, he can have 25 people wow. upset. Mm-hmm. And so that's a real dangerous one. Mm-hmm. I've got another 40 seconds left. Uh, how do you uh, choose when other people do these things to you and you get tired of it? Well, I think you have to accept the fact that when you're a pastor, you're just going to have it. Right. Uh, this is part of it, and you have to be willing to accept it. And if you're not willing to accept it, then you should find another occupation. But you have to depend on the leaders in your church to be strong, be courageous, and deal with these things. Mm-hmm. Mark Atterbury, you're an interesting guy. I really like this uh, book. It's, it's, very, um, it's very interesting. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, and I'd love to have you back because there's way more in this. And, you know, you're pointing people out. You're not being critical. You're just um, calling the shots. You're an umpire calling balls and strikes. Exactly. That's yeah, right. which is what I like about it. Thank you for being on the show. Hey, thank you. You bet. Mark Atterbury's been my guest. You can go um, a little stronger 
everyday.com. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. I'm so glad to welcome back to the program Dr. Rebecca Ree. She uh, has always loved words. Uh, even as a kid, she used to love to spell words and just lay them out on a page and go, look, they're all spelled correctly. She used to love to read, and she uh, grew up in Puerto Rico, so she was uh, reading books in Spanish and English. And then she decided to not go into medical school. She decided at Yale to um, go into studying uh, Shakespeare, Greek philosophy, drama, African-American poetry, medieval and Renaissance masterpieces. And then she decided from there to go uh, and get her uh, Ph.D. at Boston College. So I've got a Hebrew scholar on the line, and I'm always glad to talk to her. Rebecca, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me back. I'm yeah. very delighted to be here. You are a master of making observations and writing about them, and I'm always fascinated. You do incredibly interesting work, and I know today we're going to talk about the dandelion. The humble dandelion. <laughs> I can't wait. Yes. So actually, the topic is that we're talking about is a much greater topic, which is the effort we put into something versus the return that we get back from, from it. And what happens when, as spiritual creatures, that dynamic does not go the way that we want it to? Because I think we've all had that experience. So this all started for me when I was standing in my driveway recently, and I looked down, and this innocent little flower popped up its yellow head in my driveway and I look down and I see it there and I think, I pay way too much money in landscaping fees <laughs> for you to be showing your weedy little face around here. <laughs> um, and that's a pretty good metaphor for life, isn't it? You know, we pour out tons of effort into certain parts of our lives and we expect a good return. And dare I say, sometimes we even expect perfection, right? Yeah, definitely. But so far... So often in this fallen world, that is not the case. And I would say we're especially waking up to reality in this pandemic that that's not the case. You know, people may be thinking during this pandemic, I am trying my hardest and I am still in trouble financially. I am, you know, I am trying my hardest and my kids are still having trouble with their school situation. We're still having health issues and physical, physical mental, emotional problems, mm -hmm. and we're not sure when or if we are ever really fully going to get back on our feet. You know, we're, we're just seeing that dynamic over and over again. When, is, when are the full fruits of my efforts going to, you know, come back? So no matter how hard we try, there are always going to be those weeds popping, us, popping up, giving us trouble. And those weeds remind us just how little control we actually have over our lives. And sadly enough, if you have too many areas where you give out way more than you get back, you can turn into a very bitter person. And then every dandelion you encounter in your life can become an indictment against God. 
um, like his grace really isn't sufficient for you. And either he can't or he won't help you. And I think that's at least that's what the voices of darkness would have you believe. That's their takeaway message. You're on your own. Yeah. And I've seen this happen again and again in other people's lives. And I know it happens for sure a ton of times in my own heart that, you know, it's just that every little thing that comes up starts to become God's fault. And I really am on my own. So, you know, I'm looking at this dandelion. It's a weed. But I can't get past the, the fact that it's also a flower. I mean, the color was like bright yellow and it was pop. That color was popping against the green grass and the black asphalt. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe that's why the creator of the universe decided to package this weed in the form of a flower, because in some small but significant way, he's issuing a challenge to that lie. Um, if only we will listen. So, you know, one of the ways I keep always reminding myself to listen to God to those small little challenges that he's always issuing to the to the voices of darkness is by going to the scriptures. And when we do that, when we go to the scriptures about flowers, we find that Jesus actually references flowers two times in the Bible um, in different ways, but both ways are positive. I'd like to just jump in, if, if you wouldn't mind, and let's, let's go ahead and see what Jesus has to say I'd love it. about flowers. So, this, you know, the first place I want to mention is the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to just um, read what he says. He says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They ne- neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today— and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So, you know, you can just imagine on, you know, Jesus standing on the hillside and he's preaching to all these people. You know, I, I imagine a crowd, and some people think, you know, that that sermon was preached several times to several crowds. Um, but he's looking and he's saying, you know, your heavenly father is quite aware of all your needs, and he's going to take care of you. And his bottom line is, do not worry. Jesus is, is using this flower analogy to say, do not worry. So that's, you know, the first thing that we hear about Jesus saying about flowers. And then the second thing he's saying is kind of a, a different um, setting. It's more intimate. He's at dinner. Um, he's with um, his favorite friends, you know, the, ho- the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And they're at the table. And Mary, who's the sister of the resurrected Lazarus does something quite special. Um, she takes a, a jar of nard, N-A-R-D, and nard is um, perfume that's made from a flowering plant, and it was very, very expensive. Um, and she breaks it open, puts it on Jesus's feet, and wipes his feet with her hair. It was just like an ex- unbelievably extravagant gesture. And as you can imagine, everybody at the table, just the nard is like filling their nostrils. It's just like a billowing smoke almost like, but it's just this, this aroma. You know, you can't not experience what's happening there. And everybody, interestingly, immediately like gets on her case about it. Um, they all jump on her and they like, for um, practical reasons, they're like, you shouldn't be do- you shouldn't have done that. We could have you know, taken that nard, if you were going to break it open anyway, we could have sold it and given the money to the poor. 
And Jesus, you know, here's his response, which is, you know, we put it um, really directly next to the re- to what he was saying, the do not worry on the Sermon on the Mount. We put it directly next to that. And he fiercely defends her. And instead of using flow- the flower as the reassurance that he was giving on the ser- Sermon on the Mount to give reassurance, we see Jesus using the flower to take reassurance. And specifically, he's taking reassurance for himself. Now, listen to this. He says, leave her alone, says Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And when I hear these words, I hear a man who is about to face a horrific death saying, look, I need this. I need someone to minister to the grief and dread that I am feeling about my upcoming ordeal. You know, maybe everyone else around the table isn't thinking about it, but you can believe that Jesus is thinking about it. He might have been surrounded by people, but he might have felt intensely lonely because he knew what was coming up. And yes, it's true, you know, maybe he's thinking, yes, it's true that my Heavenly Father will provide for all of your needs, like I said in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's also true that he has called me to do an impossible thing for your sake, and I am in agony about it. And Mary's act of love is bringing me comfort and strength to go on, and it really hits the spot. And it's like a curtain gets pulled back on Jesus's inner heart. And we see that when he was telling people to trust God, he wasn't saying that from a proud pedestal, but from a place of understanding that a big part of being human is grappling with limitation and loss of control to a frightening degree. Like he really understood that. Um, And I want to share a personal illustration from my own life about you know, grappling with limitation. Um, and so for certain reasons I'm not going to get into, um, I am medically unable to lose weight right now. I have all my life, um, you know, I'm Asian. Asians tend to be, a lot of them tend to be on the thin side. And all my life I've been thin. And I've always been a healthy eater. And in the last many years of my life, I have been an avid exerciser. exerciser. But about two to three years ago, I developed um, a medical condition, which required me to take medications that put some pounds on me. And no matter what I tried, and when I tell you what, what I've tried, you know, several eating plans, um, daily caloric deficit, using, you know, fitness trackers, all under medical supervision. Everything that I tried was under careful medical supervision, and I was extremely disciplined about it. I cannot shed this elephant suit that I feel that I'm wearing. It's just terrible. I feel like I'm walking around in a body that's not mine, and I feel very heavy in it. And it's brought up all kinds of body shaming issues from my past that, you know, just it's amazing that what happened to you, like, you know, three decades three decades ago can suddenly be alive in you, whatever happened to you in middle school or high school. It's amazing how that those emotions are suddenly, like, right there. And... Um, 
I've been told by my medical profession professionals that I cannot eat fewer calories without getting into disordered eating. And I know myself that I can't exercise more without eating into my schedule improperly because I don't want to spend more time on, like, I don't want to make an idol of exercise. And I need to make sure that I'm prioritizing having enough energy to take care of my son who has autism. And he requires a lot of energy for, for that. So I need to make sure that I'm allocating enough energy to do what he needs. So in sum, I just don't think that losing weight is at the top of God's to-do list for me right now. I think, like, I believe that he wants me to take my meds. He wants me to continue being as healthy as I can. And he wants me to get on with other things. Like, my, my son, we're implementing some new strategies in his therapy, and I've got some new creative writing projects going on. So I think that's what God wants me to focus on. But, you know, every morning I wake up and I look in the mirror and I see a big, fat, ugly dandelion. And I still hear a voice in the back of my head saying, well, how little can I eat today? Or how much more can I exercise? Because there's still something inside of me that wants to keep trying and trying, like something that doesn't want to admit that the rat race isn't going to work. Like something in me wants to keep, like, keep at it, keep running on that hamster wheel because it believes that I can beat this thing. And if I beat this thing, then, then, and only then I can love and accept myself just a little bit. Very conditional. Mm Mm-hmm. And when I realized that, I had to step back, and I thought, oh, my gosh, that's not a scary attitude, but that is a sinful attitude. And I define sinful as anything that harms someone made in the image of God, and that includes you. And the best way I could sort of make it drive the point home for myself, because so often we sin against ourselves and we just blow it off. We go, well, it's just myself. I can sin against myself. I can do something harmful to myself. It's just me, right? We do that all the time. Is I thought, what if I were to apply such a conditional lens to my son? What if I were to say, I'll love and accept you when you can talk. I'll love and accept you when you stop acting weird in public or when you catch up to your peers. I'll love and accept you when you can hide your autism better. You know, as costly as my son's developmental deficits can be, I love him more and not less because of them. Mm. You know, I understand that he's struggling with a body and a brain that does not function the way most others do. And he's got his, in some ways, he's got his own elephant suit weighing him down. Mm hmm. Rebecca, once again, you're crafting your words so beautifully and sharing from your heart uh, so in such a full way. I appreciate that so much, and I know my listeners do too. Let me take a short break. When we come back, lots more with Dr. Rebecca Ree. You can head over to her website, RebeccaRee.net, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-H-E-E.net. Be right back. are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. 
I'm back with Dr. Rebecca Ree, who is a brilliant thinker, writer, processor of all things uh, minutia, which I appreciate. I love minutia. And you've got you've got us on pins and needles over here, Rebecca. <laughs> yeah. I got Rosie tearing up and it's just powerful, powerful story you're telling today. And I do want to get back to it. Okay. So um, we were talking about my son who has autism yes. and is wearing his own kind of um, elephant suit. And um, so... I was thinking the difference between him and me is though I, I carry my elephant suit with shame and, and bitterness, and he doesn't with his. And the difference is because somewhere along the line, I believe some lies, and he's not carrying those lies. Hmm. And um, those lies were, you know, um, I'm carrying around some standards that um, the voices of darkness told me I had to be perfect. When I didn't meet those standards, I got bitter about it. Or those lies might be that I was entitled to some things in this imperfect world that Jesus said, you're not going to get those perfect things in this imperfect world. So then things got better, right? So, um, so let's just cut to the chase and talk to you. What can we do when we're not getting the return on our efforts? You know, when we're walking around in our personal elephant suits and we're bitter, what are the things that we can do? And I want to tell you three things that we can do. When we've got, when we feel like God is shortchanging us, um, and we've poured out so much and received so little in return, so the first thing that we de- need to do is we look down. We look, we examine the dandelions at our feet, and we have to be brutally honest about the disappointment and distress that we're feeling, and that usually means bringing a trusted person into our confidence about about it. Um, just telling our own you know, our own self in a, in a closet isn't going to work. We really need to bring a trusted person. There's something about confessing it to another person that's very, very um, powerful. And you know what? The prophet Jeremiah said, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long, and everyone mocked me. He was, he was a faithful prophet, and he, he gave it to God. He didn't mince words. So you lift up your lament. It's an act of worship. You look down at your, those dandelions, and you, you be honest about it. Number two, you look in. You ask the Holy Spirit to show you if there's any lies you've been believing that have led you to a bitter place. And I talked about that. Maybe you, we were convinced that you should have looked a certain way, achieved a certain goal, that you were entitled to a certain treasure. And when you didn't get it, your thinking got sinful and scary. Um, and that's like the, the psalmist said in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And then the third thing you need to do is look up. After you've voiced your anger, after you've asked God to, you know, show you what's, what's sinful and scary in your heart, then you need to sit at the table with Jesus and gaze into his eyes. And see how much he loves you the way Mary seemed to grasp that reality. She was the one sitting at his feet. She was the one that like kind of grasped how, how stupendous was the love that Jesus had. And she could not help but respond in kind by doing a beautiful thing for him. And Jesus said that when we pour out love onto another person, we've done it unto him. So maybe what you need to do is prayerfully ask him, who, who needs me to do a beautiful thing? Um, and it might very well be that you, that beautiful thing needs to be done to yourself, and it will minister to him. That will hit the spot 
for Jesus when you do it to yourself. It might be another person that will hit the spot for Jesus. But just know the whole time as you do these three things, looking down, looking in, looking up, that in his eyes you are a fragrant flowering plant. You are worth all of his sacrifice. He's ready to take you through fields that may seem like a desert place, but actually they are holy fertile ground. He wants to grow good things in you that are going to yield a hundredfold than what you think. That is powerful. I just love this illustration and I love your honesty and your candor and the way you've laid this out, Rebecca. It's it's giving us a whole lot to think about for sure. Well, you know, that one little flower, I don't even know if it's still there in my driveway. Um, they might have killed it by now, <laughs> the people that came by. But I'm glad I snapped a picture of it, but it had a lot to speak. And you know what? This world around us, as fallen as it is, God puts all kinds of things in it to just just challenge the lies that are constantly being bombarded, you know, we're being bombarded with. God, God speaks, too. He really does draw all these little things. He does. Isn't it kind of simple to understand the enemy's approach? All you have to do is listen to what God says. I'll never leave you or forsake you. So turn that around, and the enemy's saying, you're going to be alone someday. Oh, yeah. The problem is it's um, the enemy's got some authority in this world, so it's much easier to hear his voice. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier to hear his voice in this world, and we really, really have to try very hard and band together to hear God's voice. Mm-hmm. We can be we can be all alone to hear the enemy's voice, but we got to band together to hear God's voice. Yeah, Rebecca, I'd love for you to say more about just being brutally honest about some of the deep disappointment and distress that people are experiencing. Because I know I know a lot of people are feeling it right now. Well, I'll say something from the Hebrew scholar point of view. Okay, good. Um, um, there's a word. So when um, when you, with that that psalm saying, you know, God, God search me and know me, see if there be any grievous way in me. That yes. word grievous, it comes from the Hebrew word which is etzev, etzev, and it, that the first time we see that that root is when God curses Eve in childbirth. He says, "In pain you will give birth." Right, etzev, you, and then the next place we see it in Genesis is when God grieves his own childbirth, when he sees that humanity is just hopelessly evil, and he thinks, I've got to, like, wash this out. Like, we see the flood happening, right? Mm-hmm. So God God doesn't curse Eve with anything that he himself doesn't experience. She experiences pain in childbirth, and he experiences childbirth pain as a creator. So when we go through this process of inviting God to look in us and make a fundamental change in us, like change the way I see the world and the way I I respond to um, feeling like I'm being shortchanged and and I need help, know that God doesn't speak to us. Like when we feel like, oh, his priority is elsewhere. I can't just say, oh, you know, God doesn't care about my weight struggles. He's doing that from a compassionate point of view i have to constantly remind myself of Mm -hmm. that you know when he says no no honey not now i want you to look over here he you know it's it's not anything that he himself hasn't walked through yeah you also said maybe you feel entitled to some treasure true love good health wealth vocational success that god never promised you of course maybe can we take out the word entitled and just put in the word desired you you've 
you desire to have true love and good health and wealth and vocational success, all things that are worthwhile right. in this life. But in fact, we're understanding that that um, God necessarily has not promised any of that. Right. In fact, Jesus promised us that in this world you will have tribulation. So yeah. it's not wrong to want those things. Right. But once we see it, we cross the line into entitlement. That's where the, do- the door opens for bitterness. Yeah. And when that happens and you start drifting that direction, uh, you have to pay attention. Otherwise, it, it goes downhill kind of fast, doesn't it? That's why you need a confident, confidant. You yeah. need a confidant to say to you, hey, you're drifting. Yeah. You're drifting. Yeah. And that would be a, a close friend, a mentor, a pastor, or someone in your life that just kind of has a pulse on your life. I think Yep, a yeah. trusted person. You have to be very careful who you share your stuff with, but definitely um, you need you need somebody. Yep. Yeah, so nice to talk to you again, Rebecca. Thank you so much for taking time to do the, the show, and I hope your summer continues to go well, and I'll look forward to chatting with you again soon. Well, thank you for having me back, Bill. I you appreciate bet. it. My pleasure. Dr. Rebecca Ree has been my guest. If you head over to her website, you'd love to sign up to get her blogs, Rebecca Ree, R-H. E-E.net, Rebecca Reed.net. That's all the time we have. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.